As was mentioned even earlier this evening, as we began those announcements, the appreciation and thankfulness that we each are able to have to God for allowing us to assemble, for granting us the health and the capability in both mind and body to gather on an occasion like this one, even though it may be certainly on the chilly side outside, we certainly are able to appreciate His blessings of physical comfort in here, in which not only can we understand that level, but even more importantly, the understanding of the spiritual blessing that is ours to open His Word, to sing songs of praise and joy, and to even approach our Heavenly Father in prayer. And so as we come to this portion of our lesson tonight, perhaps you have already noticed that our lesson will be entitled, John the Baptist Part 1, in which we'll be focusing for a few moments on the life of that interesting individual described so often in the blessed pages of Holy Writ, that gentleman known as John the Baptist. It is with that in mind that we may introduce the lesson in a way that might set the stage for some of that which is to follow. Isn't it remarkable to give some thought to the historical character of the Word of God? Sometimes you and I are able to appreciate stories that we may read to our youngsters, or perhaps we are able to see them in libraries or other places, and we understand that those things are just made up. The characters found therein never existed. The things described perhaps never actually occurred, but rather it's just a figment of somebody's imagination. But yet it isn't that way with the Word of God. You and I can empathize in so many ways with some of the characters there. We can appreciate the failure of Peter because perhaps you and I have been there. We can perhaps imagine in our mind's eye the things that took place in the life of David or some of the matters concerning Joshua because perhaps in parallel we have faced also some matters similar to those things which they encountered. And that historical feature of the Holy Scriptures give it an aura and an atmosphere that no human production could ever match. God in fact revealed His truth in the life and times through His revelation involving human beings. It is in that regard that some of these comments are worthy of our remark. As we read about those characters in the Bible, only one perfect individual, of course, we find Jesus the Christ. All the others, some of them were very noble. Many of them were very impressive, but even they were not in a position of me making no mistakes. But it was with Jesus... Indeed, Hebrews 4.15 declares, We have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Thus, even the Lord Himself, as we read the chronicles of His life, those events actually happened. The way that He interacted with individuals, whether sick or not, whether in such dire straits or not, the Lord told them the truth. He urged them to appreciate the message of God and he pleaded with them to respond in kind. Tonight, as we begin to look at John the Baptist, might we give some thought of what an expressly important person he was in the biblical narrative. Sometimes John seems to be overlooked. Sometimes we lay great emphasis on Jesus, and rightfully we should. Sometimes we lay great emphasis on the apostles, and rightfully we should. And sometimes we lay great emphasis on Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Noah and some others. And rightfully, we should. But John the Immerser, John the Baptist, he too, in fact, dwelled often on the biblical stage. 
and his work was vitally important. In fact, it was vitally essential. And so tonight, as we begin to look briefly at some of the matters involving the life of John, may we be drawn nearer and closer to a more thorough understanding of who this gentleman was, the kind of service that he rendered, the powerful impact that he had on the church, though he never lived to see it. And in fact, all of that will challenge us to appreciate some of those lessons will also have parallels that can aid us as we strive to be more diligent servants and students in the kingdom of our God. It is with those things in mind that I would invite you to come with me to, first of all, an appreciation concerning some prophecies of John. Now, might we note these are not prophecies that John uttered, but rather prophecies written long before the day of John that spoke about him. In fact, as we divide the lesson tonight into three sections or segments, this will be our first one. And let us look briefly then at some of these issues and some of these beautiful matters involving prophecies concerning John the Immerser. In order to begin that discussion, we certainly would be well to notice one of the things that Lucas read just a moment ago. In the course of Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we will remember that Mark, in essence, hits the ground immediately in his gospel account. He, in fact, immediately makes note of the gospel and affirms that this particular gospel was one heralded by the greatness of the Christ. And a forerunner, of course, for him was none other than this John the Baptist. It will be in that matter I have asked you to notice all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, state some interesting matters and features about this gentleman. Not only is Mark 1 verse 2, but one could note Matthew 3 verses 1 to 3, Luke 1 verse 76, and John 1 verse 23. All of them made note by direct statement that John fulfilled one or more Old Testament prophecies about one that would prepare the way for the coming Messiah, one that would be the forerunner of him, and in fact, Isaiah 40, verses 1, 2, and 3 is the passage that in so many ways is quoted in these verses. In particular, in verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 40, we have in the words of a prophet who labored and worked well over seven centuries before John was ever born. We have words like these. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Can we not see in that when those New Testament writers quote that and specifically apply it to John? We notice then that the efforts and work of John were such that they were directly prophesied long before John was ever born. In addition to that, you might note with me a rather powerful text in Malachi chapter 3. It is on that instance that we find one of the most direct prophecies as it relates to the chronology of time. In fact, I would invite you to read that one with me. Malachi chapter 3, verse number 1. After listening to what Isaiah had declared, it might do us well to at least remark that Malachi followed Isaiah by a fairly lengthy amount of time. The book of Isaiah, again written well over seven centuries before Jesus was ever born. Malachi, however, was written a little over four centuries before he was born. Three hundred years may thus well have elapsed between the days of Isaiah and the days of Malachi. 
And yet, through the words of this prophet, God had this to say. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Beautifully, remarkably, and ever so majestically. God, through the prophet Malachi, here affirmed, Behold, the messenger will come, and then suddenly the Lord shall come to His temple, giving us the direct impression that the Messiah would very closely in time follow the coming of John. In fact, as we shall study later, there wasn't much time between the birth of John and the birth of Jesus. And not only that, we appreciate in this that the statement is made, He shall prepare the way before me. John had a clear work related to preparation. He, in essence, began the paving work that would ultimately lead to the reality of the coming of the Christ, preparing the hearts and minds of individuals that they would be receptive to the message of truth in many ways, and that they would have a mindset ready to receive those nuggets of eternal truth that the Master would, of course, state and drop to them. John's work, important indeed. Those things, of course, challenge us to notice that even the Lord Himself made note of the greatness of the work attached to the manifestation of John. In Matthew chapter 11, verse number 14, we appreciate in particular that greatness housed in language that actually began in verse 11 of that chapter, among those born of women, there hath not arisen greater than John the Baptist. You see, in terms of those who thus had a role of greatness attached to him, Jesus said, among those born of women, none has arisen greater than John the Baptist. His work was that vital. His work was that significant and that important. In fact, the Old Testament would liken him in more than one way to Elijah the prophet. You might notice that I called our attention to Malachi 4 verse 5, the very last chapter in all the Old Testament. It was in that particular passage that again the God of heaven declared, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Confessedly, that passage might appear to be a difficult one. And were it not for the realization of the New Testament, you and I might still wonder about the significance of who this Elijah was. But thankfully, Jesus pointed to this passage and told us who that Elijah was. He said it's John the Baptist. Matthew 11 verse 14. This is Elias which was for to come. And he was speaking about John. This immerser, this Baptist then who the Lord referenced is one who had a very vital role just like Elijah did, at least in one sense. Elijah was a bold prophet for God. He had the audacity and backbone to oppose Jezebel and Ahab. He had the nerve to, in fact, climb Mount Carmel and to engage in a contest with the prophets of Baal, and he was victorious. We, of course, may well remember that John, too, had backbone and bravery and courage. And he preached without apology and in uncompromising fashion the fact that there was necessity to repent and there was importance in baptism. John preached that in a day when the message wasn't entirely pleasing to the ears of many. 
and yet he thoroughly, powerfully, and directly let that message herald all around the Jordan River Valley. It is to be noted beyond all of that. We might well at this point notice in John 1 verse 6 that even on that occasion, the opening chapter of the gospel according to John made reference again to the greatness attached to John's work. When on that occasion we read that he was a witness for the light. Though he wasn't the light, he was a witness of it. Perhaps at this point we might pause and make note of a couple of lessons that might be useful and beneficial to your life and to mine. In terms of these aspects of the life and times of John the Baptist, perhaps notice the first one. I don't believe it's at all an overstatement to state that predictive prophecy is perhaps the single most powerful evidence that's available to you and me to prove the inspired character of the Bible. Though there are many aspects and though there are many lines of argumentation that one can follow that lead to the conclusion that the Bible is the product of the mind of God, perhaps there is no single line of argumentation stronger, more powerful than predictive prophecy. You'll notice that we have discussed that Isaiah and Malachi both, four and seven hundred years prior to his birth, not only stated about the character of John, but affirmed the kind of role that he would have as a preparer for the Christ, the kind of role that he would have as a voice of one crying in the wilderness, and yet that precisely described his life, his work, and his effort. You and I are each aware that human beings cannot predict the future. We are not able to look into a crystal ball or anything else for that matter and state with specificity what should be the case a year from now, ten years from now, much less 700 years from now. And yet time and again in the Bible, there are not just a few but hundreds and hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that in fact not only were fulfilled, but were fulfilled minutely, exactly, and exactly when the Old Testament prophets said that they would be. In many of those instances, not only did the prophet detail some of the features, but often he told when it would happen. And thus, when you and I can open the New Testament and find that those prophecies were fulfilled exactly when and how the prophet said, no wonder we should have even greater appreciation for and confidence in the nature of the Word of God. In fact, as one discusses with others in our modern world, those who perhaps have doubts about the Bible, predictive prophecy is one thing that in fact is a very, very telling matter for discussion because again, everyone knows humans cannot predict the future, but God can because the future is really not the future to Him. Perhaps you might notice a few of these passages. In 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Thus the Scriptures are not the product of men. They are the product of the Holy Spirit, of God. And in Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, that beautiful prophet of old who was so great in his discussions of the Christ, that prophet Isaiah, on that occasion, again, God speaking through him said, that it is I who declares the end from the beginning 
I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. He is, of course, the God for whom time does not limit Him. The future is not a shaded matter and it's not a mystery to God. But perhaps a second lesson is also worthy using these first matters in the life of John the Baptist. It might well be this thought. We've learned, especially from the words in Malachi 3, that it was the plan and the will of God that Jesus have one that would prepare the way for Him. But you and I might argue, if the Lord was so perfect and if He was so great, did He really need anybody to prepare the way for Him? Did He really need anyone to, in essence, begin to plow the ground so that things would be more prepared and ready for Him? You and I would do great injustice to question God in that regard because God's plans are perfect. There are no failures or faults in them, and His plans have precisely the end result that in His mind is that which is the ideal and the best and the perfect way to proceed. It was that way with regard to the home. Isn't it amazing that to this day there still are sociologists and psychologists who think that they have a better design for the home than God does. And they write their books and they print their articles in which they assert and usurp authority over what God has declared that they, by virtue of their statistical studies, have a better idea and a better plan for the home than God does. And all that you and I must say to that is Genesis 2, verses 23 and 24 say not so. God's way is the best. When there is one woman for one man for life, and they are joined together as one flesh in the bond of the love that God would have them appreciate, and they can forge a home built solidly upon the declarations of truth that the Scripture set forth, and that they can be that foundation for a location, a community, a nation. That is the ideal, of course, for the home, and man will never have a better idea than that one because God's ways are perfect. Can we not remember in Deuteronomy 32.4 that that particular statement is made, that His ways are perfect? Furthermore, even as it relates to the church, there still are many, as we noted in our lesson this morning, who think that they have a better idea for the worship of the church than God does. They think the structure of it they can improve upon. They think that the matters of it, they have a better idea. But all we need to do is note Ephesians 5.27 and say, Not so. God's way with regard to the church is always the best. In that passage, are we not in position to recollect and recall that there we see that He desired this church to be such that he purchased it, made it available to himself. In what way? A glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. No failures, no shortcomings with respect to its design, with respect to the ultimate nature of its objective and mission. It was perfect. Human hands had nothing to do with its design, nothing to do with the presentation of its character and nature, and certainly nothing to do with the character of its doctrine. But yet men have often thought their ideas are superior. Thus, these opening two lessons, which parallel some features of the life of John, perhaps challenge us to go even further and note the next section that might be affirmed about John, and then some lessons based on it also that can be fruitful for you and for me. 
After noting those Old Testament prophecies of John, the next thing that we might keep in mind are the features concerning John's parents and the birth of John. Thankfully, we have some details in the opening chapter of the Gospel according to Luke as it relates to these matters. And first of all, as we give thought to John's parents, might we begin in this fashion and in this way. We learn in Luke 1 verse 5 very clearly that both of John's parents, both his father and his mother, were descendants through the lineage of Levi, descendants, if you please, through that beautiful character of the priesthood set forth in the Old Testament. As we give thought to that, we learn something exceedingly special about these people. In fact, if you'll notice with me some of the things on that slide, the very next verse affirms that these two, both father and mother, walked in all the commandments of the Lord blameless. That is a high compliment. Few people in all the Bible are so characterized and so described. Here were these two walking in the commandments and ordinances of the Lord and doing so blamelessly. Certainly, John's parents were righteous individuals in that they loved the Lord, they appreciated His will, they lived beneath the Old Testament, of course, that law of Moses, and they were very appreciative of the role that thus they occupied, being the descendants through the priestly tribe. And in that way, might we thus note this. We learn in that same set of verses that they were very desirous of a child. That's not unusual. Many a father and mother looks forward to that day when they are blessed with a daughter or with a son. Zachariah and Elizabeth were John's parents' names, and they prayed to God that they might be blessed with a son. We learn something interesting, though. God did not answer that prayer the way that they had thought and the way that they had prayed and the way that they desired because old age came upon both of them and she, Elizabeth, was still barren. We do not know how much time elapsed from the time that they prayed for a child until the time that God answered that prayer. But since they now were stricken and very old, and that's the meaning of the Greek term, surely it must have been many, many years and in that, we appreciate, though, that God did come to them and bless them with a son. Note some of the remaining things that we might note. The message, in fact, is still such an intriguing one. Because that Zechariah, of course, was of the priestly tribe, he had the privilege of officiating at the services of the temple in Jerusalem. And as he, of course, was one of those who officiated at the respective and proper time, when he went in to offer the incense offering and to burn that matter of incense, the angel Gabriel appeared to him. Needless to say, Zechariah was startled. Here was an angel appearing at his side, appearing there in his presence. And we will remember some of what the angel said. The angel stated, God has heard your prayer. But isn't it interesting that prayer was prayed so many years earlier and in addition to that, the angel affirmed that a child was going to be born to them despite the fact that they were now old in years. The angel even affirmed what the name of that boy was to be. It was to be John. And can we not appreciate that some of the efforts and labors of his work was also specified and detailed? But one more thing to note in the brief time we have in this part of our lesson tonight. 
John also made this statement, How shall I know that these things shall be? There seemed to be a bit of doubt in John's mind, and perhaps you and I can understand that. The angel said, You shall be dumb, unable to speak. And from that time until his wife gave birth to that son, John was unable to speak. We now, rather, Zechariah was unable to speak. And with regard to that thought, notice as the months roll by. We now arrive at this particular stage of Luke 1, verses 20 and following. As the months pass away and pass by, we quickly learn that another pregnancy also was about to begin. It was a woman named Mary. She had kinship, of course, to Elizabeth, and we, of course, remember that Jesus and John were, were cousins. Six months separated them in terms of age, and thus that helps us appreciate Malachi's prophecy. Suddenly, the Lord would come to His temple. There would not be any great length of time between them, and yet you and I have seen that it was but half a year. Perhaps at this point, two more lessons might be ours. First of all, consider this one with me. Might we revisit for just a moment that matter of the prayer of Elizabeth and Zechariah? They prayed earnestly, and they prayed no doubt with a heart filled with urgency with regard to having a child. And yet God did not answer that prayer in the way they wanted to then. They wanted a child then and now. They didn't want one 20, 25, 30 years later, however many years it may have been. By that time, both were old and well-stricken in years and past the age of childbearing time. What might that say about God's timetable for answering prayer? Is it not true that sometimes you and I bow our knee to the God of heaven and pray? We have something resting on our mind. There is something that we wish to proceed at once. We want to pursue perhaps a change in ourselves or our family or something at work. But the answer seems not to come in the next week or the next month or maybe even the next year. Perhaps you and I thus have been in a position similar to that of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Might we, in fact, make note of some of these matters as it relates to that? In 2 Peter 3.8, we are reminded that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And so it is that God doesn't operate on your timetable and mine. He is far greater than that. He is far more infinite, of course. And in that regard, His timetable need not be that which you and I force upon Him. But rather, can we not appreciate some of these promises? In 1 John 3, verse 22, that writer John did affirm that we have those things we ask of Him because we keep His commandments and do those things pleasing in His sight. We are thus promised that God does hear our prayers as His faithful children and that He will answer those prayers. But might we notice in 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15, we are promised that when we pray according to His will, we have those petitions that we've asked of Him. And doesn't that help us notice the importance of that little phrase, according to His will. When you and I thus pray, God, and we pray as a part of that prayer, Thy will be done, and not my own. 
that allows us to ever appreciate that God will answer that prayer, but He may not answer it in the way that is according to you and I and our request. For because we have stated humbly and sincerely, Thy will be done, we appreciate that His answer will always be the way that's right and always the way that's better. And thus when He does answer, it may not be on our timetable. With regard to John, think about the greatness of his work. Though he wasn't born when his parents perhaps would have wished, because he was born when he was and the way that he was, he could influence for all time and eternity the lives of countless individuals who would come to know the Savior through his preaching. Had he been born 30 years sooner? Had he been born 50 years sooner, however many years it may have been? In the timetable of God, he couldn't have had the same influence. He couldn't have had the same effort and labor to bring about the preparatory work for the Master, to prepare that ground so that Jesus' efforts and His preaching could be better received. God's timetable is always the right one. No wonder in Galatians 4.4 we read, But in the fullness of time God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Thus when we pray, May we ever appreciate the power of a thy will be done and to understand that sometimes God's answers to our prayers is not always yes. Sometimes He says no, but that is still an answer. And it is an answer that's often for our betterment. How many times have you and I in retrospect reflected that had we gotten what we prayed for when we prayed for it, that it would not have been the best matter for our life. But because we received it when it was the timetable of God, it not only fit the need of our life then, but in fact it did far more than what we ever could have imagined. Maybe we each have been blessed in ways like that. We should trust that God's timetable is always the one that is the better. But perhaps another lesson has to do with John's godly parents. Elizabeth and Zechariah, his mother and father, inasmuch as they walked in the commandments of the Lord blamelessly, and inasmuch as they were characterized as individuals of righteousness, what an influence they were able to have on that little baby born to their care, John. He was reared knowing the fullness of the character of the Old Testament prophecies, understanding the nature of the priesthood and all that surrounded it, and that he had the special role and effort to prepare the way for the Master. In fact, even before his birth, his father Zechariah prophesied of the nature of his special efforts as it related to the highest Jesus that would come after him. Think about with me, what were some of the things that Zechariah no doubt instilled in that little boy as he grew up? Helping him to understand and know what work his would be the great things that he would accomplish as the preparer of the way, as the one, the voice crying in the wilderness, Zechariah did that. And as he did that, what again an influence he must have been. As you and I think about the role and the benefit of godly parents that maybe you and I have been blessed to enjoy and to have, and those who we try to be ourselves with regard to our own children, Think about some of the things the Scriptures have to say to us about that. One could make mention of Samuel's mother, Hannah, who in the desire of her heart wished and prayed for a son. 
God answered that prayer, though at the time she was barren and blessed her with that little boy. And she, in great love for the cause of her God, was willing to turn him over to the service of the temple and the service of the tabernacle, I should say, at that time in his life. Could we not also make mention of Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.5, whose mother and grandmother, Eunice and Lois respectively, were such that they influenced that little boy even from the time he was a babe. Because isn't it true in 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul even noted that from a babe, Timothy, thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. We thus need to ever lift high the thought of parents who will take, those, take their children to Bible studies and lift high the truth of God's Word before them, always by example, with the beauty and clarity to be found in it. And to let those children see dad and mom build their life on something far higher than them, on a thus saith the Lord. John had that blessing. Perhaps one more text that you and I could note in that said would perhaps along that same line be even the Lord's parents, Mary and Joseph. They too are spoken of highly in the gospel accounts as these individuals by way of their lineage that could be traced even back to David and even further all the way to Adam. Might we give some thought and note then the blessing that accords to those godly parents of the life of John. And with that in mind, the final section of our lesson this evening. This particular section has to do with John's person. We have chronologically advanced from those Old Testament prophecies to the very birth of John. And now, what about the person? Once he grew up, what kind of man did he turn out to be? What kind of individual was this man called John? First of all, let us notice some of the details of his life. First of all, one might well note the crudeness of his apparel. John sought to make no fashion statement, make no mistake. He was not the one whose picture would be plastered on the latest fashion statements in that day and time. We quickly learned, do we not, that he was clothed in that camel's hair. And furthermore, he wore a leather belt around his midsection. And that's the fullness of all the scriptures will tell us. Thus, far from being the typical toga variety of the apparel of that day, we notice that he rather wore these camel's hair, and not only that, we notice the food he ate was also not the typical variety. Although it was true that it was not that uncommon to eat locusts, or at least a special variety of locusts in that day, this seems to have been a staple of John's diet. Locusts with my, and wild honey. As that is revealed to us in Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2, we come to appreciate that this gentleman named John was a bit on the rugged side. He didn't seem to be one who spent much time in the cities. He didn't seem to be an urban dweller, if you will. He rather labored extensively in the Jordan River Valley. There alongside the Jordan River, engaging in the pristine efforts that the God had called on him to do. He taught with boldness and he taught with great courage and accuracy. You'll notice the scriptures especially note the desolate places in which he labored. At this point, though, something seems unusual, as if what we've mentioned so far isn't. The text expressly says that many went out to him. It's not as if he went into Jerusalem and into the other places 
and there set up a tent to preach. These people left the city and went out to hear him. Words seemed to spread beautifully and also remarkably with regard to the boldness and the preaching of this man. He didn't preach to tickle their ears. He didn't preach just for them to hear what they wanted to hear. He taught with directness and with boldness. And he taught with, a, with an accuracy that urged their response. In Luke, in fact, we read that there were some who would ask him, as soldiers, what should we do? And he expressly told them to be very cautious and careful as they went about their activities. Those that were tax collectors, he told them to exact no more than that was right. He urged repentance upon all that heard and all that came. This John, you see, again, was no people pleaser by any stretch of the imagination. They did not come just to be tickled with what they would like to have heard. John taught with a tremendous degree of courageousness and a tremendous sense of the nature of who he was called to be, a proclaimer of the truth of God, the preparer of the way of the Master, that voice of one crying in the wilderness. In terms of his message, might we take note? It was not designed for worldly appeal. Most of those that you might think would leave Jerusalem to go hear this man perhaps would have been received with pomp and circumstance. They were going out into a desolate wilderness to hear a man named John preach. Furthermore, we can appreciate that John was as genuine as could be when it came to his message. Never once did he draw the credit to himself. In fact, he affirmed that I must decrease, and he, speaking of the Christ, must increase. He even said, I'm not worthy to loose those matters related to the sandals of his shoes. John was a remarkable man. In many ways, in terms of his humility and the nature of his message, he would serve all of us as a great example. Doing his bidding, doing the bidding of God, but doing so with such urgency, such completeness, and such fervor. Because it is in that regard that John's work is listed on many occasions as being so vitally significant. John 10, 41, Matthew 11, verse 11, and then perhaps notice in that one in particular, that leads us to some of these lessons. And again, we will select but two. Two lessons out of this section of our study. We hinted at it this morning, but perhaps we might do so from a different perspective tonight. We mentioned the orchestration of worship to be pleasing to those who might be in attendance and how that, that was in fact wrong from the point of view of the Bible. But notice that even in his person, John was no pleaser of people. He told them what they needed to know and what they needed to hear in urgency. And in Luke 7 verses 29 and 30 in his baptisms, that was what God demanded and expected of those people. Today, not just from the perspective of a large congregation or even the Pippin congregation, we know that we don't orchestrate our services to be people pleasers. But you and I as individuals have the privilege of thinking seriously about we too ought not simply say what people want us to say. When they ask us religious questions, we need to be able 
to share with them the truth of God in such a way that it is God's truth, of course, and not just to say what they might want us to say to them. We might be that one means by which they can be caused to think and ultimately to study their Bible and lead to an obedience to the truth. But in addition to that, John, as we've already learned, by what he ate, by what he wore, by the place that he lived, he was no lover of this world. He didn't orchestrate the features of his life so that he could enjoy the luxuries and the pleasures that this world affords. We, of course, are blessed with so many of those luxuries. But may we in wisdom ever keep them in their place, knowing that we aren't placed on this earth just to enjoy worldly luxuries and pleasures. We are here for a higher calling than that. We are here to do the bidding of the Master, to ever bring about His will and to fulfill it in our lives and influence others to do the same. Because isn't it true that we long for that golden shore in which these worldly luxuries will have long since passed away into the oblivion of eternity. We are then ready to enter into the glorious climb of heaven. There there be no need for these worldly luxuries. And it was in this regard that Peter would bring our lesson to a close with these words in 2 Peter 3, verses 10 and 11. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Peter's point is well taken, isn't it? Seeing that all these earthly, worldly, carnal matters will not survive into eternity, what manner of persons ought you and I to be? Should our life be focused upon these things? Or should it be focused on those eternal matters? A poem perhaps might be in order as we give thought to that particular aspect of this lesson. It's a poem that we've noted before, but one that seems to fit so nicely at this juncture of our thought tonight. Out of this world I'm unable to take things of silver and gold that I make. All that I cherish and all that I keep I must leave behind when I fall asleep. I often wonder what I shall own in that other world where I go alone. What shall they hear and what shall they see in the soul that answers the call for me? Shall the great judge commend at the last my days for through? Or will I left behind all the things that I never needed to consider? That little poem, I do not know who wrote it. And I'm not aware even of when it was written, but it does have a rather sobering thought, doesn't it? Tonight, what about you and me as we think about all six of these lessons we've briefly considered? We might summarize them in the following way. John the Baptist, in terms of his person, has set us on a course to study many features, not the least of which are these. First of all, as he prepared the way for the Christ, we learn about the greatness, of course, of Jesus and the work that he was to accomplish for you and for me. But in particular, we've learned about the greatness of Bible prophecy and how that it is such a powerful evidence for inspiration. Furthermore, we came to see that God's plans are perfect, regardless whatever matter they may touch. In the third place, we quickly notice the answer to prayer may not come when and the way that you and I would have desired it, but God's answer is always the better. And then thir fourthly, we notice the blessedness of godly parents. And fifthly, 
the character associated with not being a person interested solely in pleasing people. And then finally and sixthly, that last one that we had noted, not a lover of the luxurious and extravagant things that this world has to offer. Tonight, as we draw this lesson to its conclusion, we will continue our study of John the Baptist next Lord's Day evening, looking at some of the next features in his life and using them to prompt us to think more urgently about our own life. Tonight, if you are not a member of the body of Christ, you know, of course, that no person, including our elders or myself, are able to accomplish that. Only Jesus can add individuals to His body. In Acts 2.47, we learn that that occurs upon your obedience. You're being baptized into the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12.13, we are baptized into one body. If you've never submitted to that act, it has prerequisites. You need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of the sins in your life, confess His name as the Son of God, and then you may be scripturally baptized. If you have taken care of that matter, and with joy you proceeded to live the life that Christ would have you live, but you have since begun to stray away, you've lived disgracefully, you have no longer maintained faithfulness to the cause of Jesus, why not come back to that first love tonight? Let us pray with you and for you, even as the Lord is anxious to forgive you upon your repentance and upon your confession. If tonight either of those matters is the need of your life, and if we may be of assistance in those ways, why not let it be known, if you would, while together we stand and while we sing.